0: Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, working side-by-side with leading scientists to better understand how complex data can be converted into innovative treatments. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Dr. Anish Chagpar and Stephen Gore. I'm Bruce Barber. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week it's a conversation about stem cell transplants for pediatric patients with Dr. Nikita Shaw. Dr. Shaw is an assistant professor of pediatric hematology and oncology at the Yale School of Medicine and director of the Pediatric Bone Marrow Transplant Program. Dr. Gore is a professor of internal medicine and hematology at Yale and director of hematologic malignancies at Smilo Cancer Hospital. I think one of the first things that I'd like to uh, talk
1: about, just because it's confusing to, I think, physicians as well as patients, bone marrow transplant, stem cell transplant, same, different. What's the story?
2: So... In general, stem cell transplant is the main uh, word we use Mm -hmm. and under that category, we can use the bone marrow transplant, cord transplant or peripheral stem cell transplant. It's the different cells which we use, but they all are stem cells. Well, what is a stem cell? So stem cell is a hematopoietic, like I-
1: Hematopoietic, what does that mean?
2: So hematopoietic means these are the cells which produces our blood cells. Okay. So when I explain to the parents, I say that these are the grandparent cells and the baby cells are produced, and these are the red blood cells, white blood cells, and the platelet, which runs in the blood.
1: So the stem cells give rise to everything else.
2: Yes. So the stem cells give rise to everything else. And Mm -hmm. the stem cells has a capacity to regenerate and make all the baby cells. So Mm -hmm. that's what we term we use, the stem cell transplant or hematopoietic stem cell transplant. Now, these stem cells are mainly located in our bone marrow. Mm -hmm. However, When the baby is born, the placenta also carries the cord blood, and the cord blood also has the same capacity as the stem cells. So sometimes we use this cord blood.
1: Cord blood meaning umbilical cord?
2: Yes, it is the umbilical cord.
1: Okay. So you can get stem cells which are found in the blood that's in the umbilical cord. Yes, Okay.
2: And, and so these are the same they they carry the same characteristic as the bone marrow stem cells.
1: I see. And, and what about this peripheral blood stem cell thing?
2: So sometimes it's difficult to collect the bone marrow from the directly from the bone so we do give donor or if we are using patient's own bone marrow we give patient a injection called growth factor mm-hmm. for the stem cells which will generate more stem cells and they will come into the circulation and we collect it from the periphery. That's why we use the term peripheral stem cell.
1: I see. But they're all, at the end of the day, giving back stem cells, and the stem cells are basically the same. Is that right?
2: Yes. These are all the stem cells. So, in general, bone marrow transplant, cord blood transplant, peripheral stem cell transplants. In the group, it's called the hematopoietic stem cell transplant.
1: I see. Well, why would somebody need one? I mean, don't people have plenty of stem cells to go around?
2: Yes, they have plenty of stem cells to go around, but some of the patients, these stem cells are diseased either due to some genetic diseases or due to some acquired disease like leukemia or aplastic anemia, where their stem cells are not working well and they produce not a good red blood cells or white blood cells or platelets. So to cure them, we use uh, stem cells from different person.
1: So you just collect the stem cells and inject them? That sounds pretty easy.
2: Yes, it sounds it easy, but it's not. Because first, we need to find out who is the best donor. Okay. And that we do it with the help of the HLA testing, which is called human leukocyte antigen testing. Mm-hmm. And usually, uh, if um, there are chances that you match your HLA with your siblings, but it's not 100%. Mm-hmm there is a range of 25 to 30% chances that you will match to your siblings mm. however in general population you may match to your same ethnic background population so okay. you can if you don't have a sibling match you go to unrelated donor uh, uh, and find out the donor from that uh, unrelated donor registry mm-hmm in united states we have the be the match unrelated donor registry which was started in 1986 and now in the registry there are more than 19 million donors mm.
1: so everybody can find one that way is that right
2: it should be but it's not like that Why? because even though in the reg- registry there are more than 19 million donors, 70% of the donors are Caucasian. Oh, I see. So for a Caucasian patient, it there are 70 to 80% chances to find a fully matched donor in the registry if they don't have a sibling as a donor. Uh-huh. However, for other minority groups, Africans, Asian, Hispanic, their representation in the unrelated donor registry is not as high as Caucasian donor. Mm. So for them, we are sometimes facing difficulty. However, to overcome this issue, we are recommending, and the Be The Match is also doing unrelated donor drive at, uh, to encourage these minority groups to register. These would
1: be targeted drives for particular ethnic groups?
2: Yes, sometimes. And particularly we see that whenever there is a patient from those groups and when the family sees there is a difficulty in finding a fully matched donor, the family also tries to do the uh, drive in their local religious or local groups so that there is also increased representation in the registry. Mm -hmm. And it helps us finding a donor for the future patients.
1: I see. Well, what about if a patient... Can't find a donor in the registry either.
2: So then nowadays, we have the option of using either the cord blood Mm -hmm. from the public cord blood bank. So in the public cord blood bank right now, there are more than 300,000 units, cord units which are donated by the pregnant ladies after their babies were delivered, and they are uh, screened. To make sure there is no infection, and we have a good stem cell numbers, mm-hmm. and they are already frozen. So if the patient doesn't find a good donor, uh, then we go to this unrelated cord blood bank, and try to find a donor from there.
1: Well, what if? But if there's 18 million on the main registry, and you can't find a donor, what's the chance of you finding a donor out of 200,000 units of cord blood?
2: Yes, that's a very good question. And yes, we do find a difficulty at that front also. However, with the cord blood, there is one advantage. Because it comes from the babies, we don't need to go to that highest level of resolution to find a 100% match in the cord. So even if it is 80 or 90% match at the cord level, we can use those cord. Because,
1: that's good enough. Huh? Yeah.
2: Nowadays, however, we have another source also. Because each child has their parents. So recently, in the last five, six years, we are doing more and more identical transplant.
1: What does haplo mean?
2: Haplo means it's a half-match. Oh. Because each child is half-matched to their father or mother. Right. Because each child carries the half genes from father and half genes from the mother. So we have changed some of our transplant techniques to get the best donor and so whatever the available donor is and use that donor cells. So even if it is 50% match from the father or mother, we can use those, but give some different medicine so that there is no more complication.
1: I see. And that transplant works well as well.
2: Yes, that works well as well. So if we see whenever we select the donor, yes, our first Best option will be the sibling. If we don't have a sibling, we go to unrelated donor registry and try to find 100% match donor. If not, then either go to cord blood bank or haplo transplant from the father or mother and recently we also sometimes use even if it is instead of 100% match in the unrelated donor registry if we get even 90% match from the unknown donor registry that's also good enough again we change a little bit of our techniques how we do the transplant.
1: I see so now you've got the donor that sounds like that was a pretty hard thing so then you just go ahead and inject the cells and you're done is that right?
2: No, it's not again that easy. No. Then we need to make sure donor is healthy enough okay. and donor is available for our timeline to donate. Sometimes we also face the challenge that if the patient has leukemia or uh, some of the other condition where they need transplant right away and donor available is not ready to donate right away, then we again need to work around that which donor is available in our expected timeline. mm mm-hmm. Once we find out that the donor is available for our timeline, then we do pre-transplant workup on the patient okay. to make sure patient is also healthy enough to tolerate the transplant process. Okay, And also make sure the donor is healthy enough and donor doesn't have infection. So that takes again two, three weeks to mm. confirm that everything is in good shape. So right. by doing the transplant, we are not going to harm donor or not going to transfer some of the infection, which if the donor has into the patient, and patient is also good enough to tolerate all the transplant conditioning chemotherapy. So, mm. so here I use the word conditioning chemotherapy. That means we need to prepare donor.
1: How do you do that?
2: And that we do to because we need to remove patient's own bone marrow, which is diseased and affected. And also we need to make sure once donor, a patient receives the donor cells, they are not going to be rejected by the patient.
1: Okay, so you treat them with chemotherapy?
2: Yes, we use some chemotherapy in some condition, we use radiotherapy also, mm-hmm. and also we use immunotherapy. So this will create first space within their bone marrow, remove their abnormal bone marrow, mm-hmm. and make sure the new cells will settle down nicely.
1: So you're actually killing the patient's own bone marrow, essentially. Is that right?
2: Yes, that's correct.
1: Wow. And then you get to inject the stem cells.
2: Yes. So once everything is ready, patients get admitted to our hospital uh, room, which is also, again, a specialized room with HIPAA filter. And then patients receive one one week to 10 days of chemotherapy and or radiation therapy and some immunotherapy. And then we give them the donor cells.
1: Hmm. And that's not really injected into the bone, right? It's not really transplanted in that way.
2: No, the donor cells will be just received by the patient like a blood transfusion.
1: I see. Well, but then now you've got stem cells circulating in the blood. How are they going to get to the bone marrow, or does that not matter?
2: No, so the bone, these new cells, the stem cells will circulate in the blood for two, three days, and then they will find a base spot in their bone. where they can settle down. Like if you're moving to a new city, you go for first the house hunting, (laughs) that where you can settle down. Same thing, these new stem cells, once they are in the new uh, body, uh, and here the patient's body, they will move around for two, three days and find the best spot where they can settle down and start making the new cells. Now this process takes Depending on which type of cells we have used, it takes anywhere from two to four weeks. Wow. If the cells were collected from the periphery, from the donor, by giving donors some injection, so these cells will engraft, means settle down Mm -hmm. and start working within two weeks. Uh If they were collected directly from the bone marrow, from the donor, they will take roughly around two to three weeks. And if they are cord cells collected from the umbilical cord, Mm -hmm. they will take anywhere from three to four weeks.
1: Well, what happens to the patient in the meantime?
2: So this time period, so this two to four weeks time period, patient doesn't have their own... Bone marrow cells and the new cells, stem cells, have not started working, and also they also experience the side effects of whatever the chemotherapy and radiotherapy we have this re- patient has received. So they have to face all these challenges, and these are the toughest time period mm. for the transplant. Wow. So.
1: So the patient is sitting in the hospital or?
2: Yes. The patient is in the hospital in a specialized room Mm -hmm. where there is less chances of infection because the patient doesn't have the white cells. So they have increased risk of infection and that can be from bacteria, virus, fungus. Mm -hmm. We do give them some prophylaxis medicine, but they still develop any of this infection. They have mucositis. What does that mean? That means mouth sores Mm. because of the chemotherapy. Mm -hmm. And and also they sometimes have the chemotherapy side effects in the form of nausea vomiting diarrhea and again we give them supportive care medicine so they experience the less side effects and all these new medicines once they have done their job they need to be removed by patient's body and these are removed by their liver and kidney and this liver, their liver and kidney, when they are removing these medicines, because these are a little bit toxic chemotherapy, they may get irritated. So we have to constantly make sure their liver and kidney is settled and we check their blood work every day to make sure they are not, uh, the liver function and the kidney function is not elevated. And we also give them, again, some supportive care medicine so they experience less side effects.
1: Well, it sounds like these poor kids are being stuck all the time.
2: So before we start the transplant process, we put them a central line. So they are not stuck all the time and they are receiving all these medicines through that central line. And that central line can be removed once their whole immediate transplant process is over.
1: So they're not really being stuck. They are not being stuck. Oh, this is really fascinating, Dr. Shah. Right now, we need to take a short break for a medical minute.
0: Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, a biopharmaceutical business that is pushing the boundaries of science to deliver new cancer medicines. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a Medical Minute about survivorship. Completing treatment for cancer is a very exciting milestone, but cancer and its treatment can be a life-changing experience. For cancer survivors, the return to normal activities and relationships can be difficult, and some survivors face long-term side effects resulting from their treatment, including heart problems, osteoporosis, fertility issues, and an increased risk of second cancers. Resources are available to help keep cancer survivors well and focused on healthy living. More information is available at yalecancercenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. This is Dr. Stephen Gore. I'm joined tonight by my guest,
1: Dr. Nikita Shah. We've been discussing stem cell transplants for pediatric patients. Nikita, uh, before we go further with this really interesting procedure, uh, i 'm hoping you can clarify uh, an issue that I think a lot of our listeners uh, struggle with our younger uh, women and men of childbearing age uh, because a lot of times nowadays I hear uh, when women are um, expecting uh, when they 're pregnant that some of them are being offered the the opportunity to collect their umbilical cord blood, and store it for a rainy day for their families. That's not exactly the same as what you were talking about on the registry. Is that right?
2: Yes, you are right. Um, And same questions we are faced with multiple times also, even in personal gathering or at the conference many times. So American Academy of Pediatrics has also recommended uh, some of the guidelines and and the policies. So as you heard that most of the time we can use the different types of the graph sources for the patient. So umbilical cord is one of the type. Right. And usually uh, not most of the like suppose if you take the hypothetical situation if your child develops leukemia. Right now pediatric leukemia has the highest cure rate. 80 to 90% of the leukemias are being cured by mainly the chemotherapy.
1: Without a stem cell transplant.
2: Without a stem cell transplant. Mm -hmm. So even if they suppose there are chances that the child needs transplant down the road, they may find a donor within the sibling or in the non-donor registry, or you can find the donor within the public cord blood bank. I see. And also sometimes if we don't have the, we um, use haplotrans uh, donor from the, from parents. the parents, right? Mm-hmm. So in if I see my carrier as a transplanter, I haven't denied any or haven't done a transplant because I didn't have any donor
1: option. I see. Right? So you're really saving this blood. In the, first of all, the chance of your kid getting leukemia hopefully is very small. Yes. Uh-huh.
2: So sometimes, yes, if in your families, there is some hematological or blood disease which runs in your family, Mm -hmm. then, yes, you can consider saving your child's cord for other sibling. But you need to make sure that child is not having that hematological disease. Yeah, I'd right? be a
1: little worried about that.
2: Yeah, so that is one of the options. So if you have some like thalassemia or sickle cell in your families, where in future transplant, hematopoietic stem cell transplant will cure your child's um, disease, then yes, the other sibling's cord, you can save it for to be used in future. But again, you need to make sure that it doesn't Kids have
1: involved. involved with that disease. Uh-huh. It's not free to save the, the cord blood, no, right? No,
2: it can range. There is an initial cost, and it can range from 1000 to $1,500 for initial cord processing. And then there is a yearly maintenance
1: you have to pay every year.
2: Yes, and there is, a, and it depends again yeah. with uh, each private cord blood bank. Other thing which we have noticed that the public cord blood bank uh, are highly regulated, hmm. and the private there is still not that strict regulation. So, so it,
1: the regulation is better. I am assuming. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah.
2: So the regulation is much more because it's reg, uh, regulated by the our fact so federal accreditation for the cellular therapy okay. and they regulate all these public cord blood banks huh? so as a transplant physician and as a pediatrician we recommend that you donate your cord a child's cord to the public bank mm. so it can be used in the future if your child needs it because it's there but its majority of the time it will be available for the other, other kids people.
1: yeah does it cost money to go into the public bank?
2: No, you just have to uh, contact your OBGYN practice and they will connect with you with the Be The Match or American Red Cross. Um, and there are many public cord blood banks in the United States.
1: And can any OBGYN have access to donating the blood? Yeah,
2: they can. Almost
1: anybody can do it. Yeah,
2: and they can. They may sometimes have, if the private practice is there, they may need some. um, But again, through the Be The Match, uh, which is a website, you can connect
1: also. Well, that's great to know because I I get asked by nurses all the time, uh, and they're feeling a lot of pressure. Um, the way the pub- the private cord banks are presented to them. And I know some of them who've actually spent the money, but they didn't really understand what they were getting into.
2: Yes. And if you see the data of those private blood banks, if we see last five years' data, are very few have been used uh-huh. also for yeah. the child's transplant or something. Well,
1: thank you for helping clarify that. I think that's something a lot of people really deal with. So uh, one of the things that, that you mentioned just a few minutes ago it uh, was a little surprising to me. Uh, you mentioned that if a family has a genetic blood disorder like sickle cell anemia or thalassemia, you might consider a stem cell transplant. Well, I thought stem cell transplants were just for cancer and things like aplastic anemia.
2: Um. Yes, uh, stem cell transplant is widely used on the adult side for mainly for the treatment of leukemia or for the aplastic anemia. But on the pediatric side, we see there are many diseases which are genetically determined. It can be due to some red blood cell disorders like thalassemia or sickle cell, white blood cell disorders, so congenital neutropenia or platelet disorders mm-hmm. where there is a uh, viscot Aldrich syndrome is one of the platelet disorders. Or their bone marrow is not working at all. And these are like anemia patients also. And here we do transplant, so their their diseased bone marrow is replaced the same way we do the transplant for a plastic anemia or leukemia. And so they have the new healthy bone marrow, which will produce the new cells, which are healthy. So they are not facing any of those issues. And recently, there is a drive towards sickle cell transplant also, because for sickle cell disease patients, they face many difficulties because of their sickle cell. And it can vary from different patients. Some may have less issue, but some may have more issues. And the average life expectancy of the healthy um, life expectancy for sickle cell patient is not same as a healthy adult.
1: Right. Well, I know that sickle cell disease is especially common in people of African ancestry, uh, of whom there are many in our listening area. Uh, And yet, Transplant for sickle cell disease doesn't seem like it's very common. Otherwise, why would we see so many adult patients who are suffering? Should everybody with sickle cell disease be transplanted?
2: Uh, uh, so with ev- I would recommend that everyone with the sickle cell disease, if they have a healthy donor option available, they should be screened for the availability and the cure option of this transplant. Hmm. We have noticed that, yes, compared to thalassemia, where, which is another disease which is common worldwide, mainly in the Mediterranean area, almost all patients are screened for the thalassemia because from the age of one year, they are transfusion dependent. Mm. While on sickle cell disease side, it's not uniform. Some may have, as mentioned, less complications, and so they are not that... Uh, but Once they cross their adulthood, there are chances that they have more complications. And recently, when we did the survey of all the sickle cell transplant, who received transplant um, from the sibling uh, all over the world, we noticed that younger the age of the transplant the higher success rate. So for a sickle cell disease transplant with the mad sibling, the success rate is more than
1: 90%. 90%? It cures the disease in 90%?
2: Yes. So again, if you have done the transplant in, when the patient's age is less than 10 years, the success rate is anywhere from 90 to 95%. Afterwards, each year you wait, the success rate little bit drops because by that time, either they have received many blood transfusion, they have abs- observed many other complications, which affects the success rate of the transplant.
1: Mm-hmm. So at what age should that be considered for, uh, for a young person with sickle cell disease who has a donor?
2: So if they have a donor, any age after five years, if they should be offered. If they have experienced multiple pain crisis, has acute chest syndrome, one of the lung complications which they experience almost one or two times a year, or they have more blood transfusion requirement, or they have a tendency toward developing stroke, then they all need to be offered this option if they have a healthy donor.
1: But if they're not having symptoms, then would you hold off?
2: Again, that's a debatable. In European countries, even the younger patients are being transplanted, here we are doing under the study. It's called the low-risk sickle cell patients. And here at Yale, we have opened the study where we are giving the option of if they have a um, healthy donor available, then at a younger age, also, we can offer them the transplant. So this way, they are not going to experience any complication because having the sickle cell disease itself, they have a chances of developing all these complications in the future. Hmm. It may not have ap- appeared at their younger age, but there are chances they will have this complication down the road.
1: What about long-term problems from the transplant in these very young patients?
2: So that's, what, that's a really good question, and that's what is being um, evaluated. And what we are doing is if they have the younger age, and particularly also for the sickle cell disease transplant itself, Nowadays we are not treating them, we are not doing the performing their transplant the same way as we perform the transplant for leukemia patients. Okay. So we are doing more called the reduced toxicity type of transplant. Oh. So that they have a lesser complications or minimum to no complication because of the transplant medicine which we use in long term. Mm-hmm. So that's approach. And most of the time, again, we compared. So previously, all this non-malignant disease transplant were also being performed same way as the leukemia transplant. But nowadays, all the non-malignant disease and particularly sickle cell in itself, we are performing it using the less toxic medicine. Mm -hmm. And when we compare the success rate, it's similar. Plus, they have less side effects in the long run.
0: Dr. Nikita Shaw is an Assistant Professor of Pediatric Hematology and Oncology at the Yale School of Medicine and Director of the Pediatric Bone Marrow Transplant Program. If you have questions, the address is Yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. I'm Bruce Barber reminding you to tune in each week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.